Welcome to Virtual Economy, a podcast about the business of games for the rest of us. We're your hosts. I'm Michael Futter. And I'm Amanda Farrow. On each episode, we'll cover the biggest business beats and bring an expert commentary from lawyers, analysts, and industry pros. This is episode 141. We need to talk about the voice acting and Bayonetta brouhaha. See, it's funny if you know Spanish. <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's really good, period. Also, at what point are we the analysts that we bring onto the show? <laughs> I mean, I've been thinking about honestly, changing our introduction. I, I have for also ages. the funny thing is it's like I'm really talking about like Dan Amod and Matt Piscatella and Pierce Harding Rolls and all the people no, like, who we've reached out to for comment. I know. But it's like we we have made our full transition. We have done our metamorphosis from person sleeping in bed to giant cockroach when we wake up in the morning. It's See, this true. is a Franz Kafka reference. It's true. You thought I was going to go caterpillar butterfly, but I went man, giant cockroach man on you. Honestly, I'm the butterfly. He's the cockroach. This is fair. <laughs> All right. We but are... I had to be a horrible caterpillar first. The interesting thing about this episode is it's the, the way we're structured here is we don't have any like main stories outside of labor, but labor is so much and investment is so much. But we do have one of our favorite things in the whole wide world. We have a listener question. I love listener questions. So, they make me so happy. Uh, uh, Christophe Debon, uh, who I am working with uh, and giving a talk next week uh, for Game Tracks, which is a group This is your of, second year doing second it. Year, giving a talk about... Uh, this year about all of the ways you can work with contract support when you are starting up and you shouldn't be doing lots of things on your own because you want to be focused on making your game. But that's a completely different story. Christoph, who is my contact over at GameTracks, lovely person, uh, asks us this question. Hey, Mike and Amanda, one thing I don't understand in this year's hardware supply chain soap, how did Valve manage to push through all their Steam Deck pre-orders faster than anticipated and are now even able to offer stock delivery while PS5 keeps struggling with supply? Is this simply a case of significantly higher demand on the part of the PS5 or something else going on? Would love to hear your take on it. Keep up the good work with the podcast. Oh, that's Thank you, nice. Sir. That's nice. All right. Thank you. I, I think this is a great question. And I actually do think that you have kind of landed on the two aspects of this that have allowed Valve to move forward more quickly than Sony and Microsoft. Yeah, absolutely. I think that part of it is, look, you're looking at two different market segments, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be overlap in your console purchasers as well as your handheld purchasers, but something like the Steam Deck is not a Switch, right? It's a completely different animal. It is an extension of PC gaming, which is still its own creature. Right. So the demand for the Steam Deck, I would imagine, has got to be significantly smaller than the demand for the PlayStation 5, which is this global darling of a console. No matter what our feelings are about Sony Interactive Entertainment, we have to acknowledge the PlayStation 5 is still a gorgeous console yeah, and yeah, does absolutely. incredible things. I love and it. I love the PlayStation 5. I, it's there true. Are, there are choices that Sony makes that, I disagree with, but the PlayStation 5 is a fantastic piece of hardware. So I feel like that's that's point one, right? We're looking at two different market segments. The overlap is there, but it's not significant, I would imagine. And households like ours are atypical and, you know, we, we can't speak to the broader marketplace. Right. I think what's been interesting is if you looked at the conversation around the Steam Deck, 
it was, wow, this is really high priced. I clearly want the higher model because of the storage and the, the faster storage and the better screen and, and, and all of that, the mm-hmm. anti-glare screen. Um, people are really excited about the Steam Deck. So this is, Valve has a, a not great track record with hardware. You've uh-huh. got the Steam boxes, you've got Steam They're Link, the hardware got... equivalent of Google. Oh my, that hurts. Uh, and you've got the Steam Controller. All of those have been phased out. Yeah. Now you've got the Steam Deck, which I think you really... I love what you said here about it being an extension of the PC platform as opposed to being a self-contained element. It's not a Nintendo Switch, right? Like, the Nintendo Switch is its own hybrid mm-hmm. console handheld um, approach that kind of sits in its own pocket of existence, much as Nintendo handhelds always have. But with the Steam Deck, because it because it is that kind of extension or even an offshoot of PC gaming... It, these are PC games that you have in your hand. Right. Which is really, really cool. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to downplay like how cool the Steam Deck is. I love our Steam Deck. It's fantastic for when we're traveling. And at the same time, if I was going to go out and purchase something for like our kids or a family member, I wouldn't likely purchase them a Steam Deck. I'd purchase them a Switch. Right. So to that point, I think what we've got going on here is you've got a lot of wait and see we have right now the people who are purchasing steam decks are your bleeding edge adopters yeah those are your early adopters that are hanging out on the one side of the bell curve yep and they are people that probably already have a robust steam library so you've got people who are sitting back you've got your your average adopters you've got your your mainstream adopters um who are probably waiting to see more games get verified Mm-hmm. Uh, now that supply is is available, that that you're going to see us move through that bell curve that Manda was talking about. But the tech I, adoption bell curve is it's the real deal. It man. is, it's, and, and, and it's, it's the same for for nearly every tech product. It's really really interesting. Yeah, the only one that sort of defies gravity on that one is VR. Yeah, that's a that's, that's a, compl- a completely different. We'll talk about we'll talk about that a little bit later. Actually, I know, uh, I know we will. It's almost like it I. It's almost like I. So smart. It's almost like so I read smart. the the show notes and I'm was really like, glad. "How do I sneak it in?" That's really good. Uh, the end game here for Steam Deck because we are going to see more iterations. It has successful enough that I think that this is here to stay. The goal for for Valve is very likely getting people who don't have PCs who are interested in the Steam platform to purchase one and begin and enter the ecosystem through the Steam Deck. That is, but that is the other side of the bell curve. And it's not going to happen until we get to Steam Deck 2, Steam Deck 3, whatever their their iterative process ends up being. Yeah, for sure. Where the hardware is more stable, the battery life is better, the heat mitigation is better, and the library for verified games is significantly bigger. I mean, we're seeing great games and there are ways if you're a power user, you can go in, you can download uh, Proton GE, uh, the community versions of it, which can actually get you games that aren't compatible with the baked in versions. So Valve's versions of Proton get them working. So but there are games that aren't listed as verified or even playable yet that or you've been playing Disney Dreamlight. I think it's now play, listed as playable. Yeah, um, but I, I've been playing that since the beginning on mm-hmm. Steam Deck. That's how I first played it. 
It's fantastic on yeah. Steam Deck. And, um, you know, and then you've got games like we know Persona 5. The reviews have just started oh, coming man. out. That's, that runs really well we on gonna, the Steam Deck. Are we going to quadruple dip? Probably, because I do eventually want to get a physical copy for we're gonna Switch, because the Switch version is apparently really we're good. We're going to quadruple dip, we is are. what we're trying to say, is we we just really like Persona. So I think just to circle back on, on, on the question, I think it is the twofold thing. I think you've got, this is a brand new product. The... The, um, the the market right now is very focused on on early adopters so it's probably much lower scale mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely much lower scale than the PlayStation 5 and when you're talking about that that kind of lower scale you can probably carve out the p- the parts that you need here and, yeah. there. and we know that there have been different um, fans by the way um we know that that people doing teardowns have found different fans different um, sure. Uh, it doesn't have different to hard be... drives and or different uh, NVMe drives and all that stuff. So like it doesn't have to be just like a PC, right? You don't necessarily have to have the same parts in it so that it's completely equal across the board. Again, mm. it's not a switch. It's having a handheld computer, an actual handheld desktop computer, but in miniature form, mm-hmm. right? In your hands. Yep. So part of it is they can keep the costs down based on what they're pulling from from manufacturing. And the other part is that the demand is just simply not as high, I would imagine, mm-hmm. as the PlayStation 5. Got it. Great. So, Christoph, thank you so much for that question. We absolutely love listener questions. Uh, but that takes us right into investment interlude. What do we do in investment interlude? Uh, we talk about money, money, and hold on, let me check my notes here. Money. Yes. Money. Money. <laughs> um, kicking off with some CD Projekt news. Uh, I, I put this in here because there's there's a lot of pieces to this, and it is not just an investment story. So we're kind of we're kind of easing into investment. Um, CD Projekt published a big strategy update this month. A bunch of announcements about the future of the Witcher franchise, Cyberpunk, and more. Uh, and here's the investment piece. The publisher has announced it is launching a new North American studio located in Boston. That's also where. Uh, molasses flood is located which they they recently acquired right also um, if you've never played the flame and the flood it is excellent yeah. you should play it and this is uh this is a group of uh founded by a group of former rational devs after yeah. that studio spun down uh and then eventually became ghost story games and you know who knows what the heck is going on over there because right <laughs> i just I, nobody, I, knows. nobody knows this has been going on for years nobody knows. uh all right so molasses flood is working on their own witcher game it is not a part of uh, the I'm excited. New trilogy. I'm excited about that. Yeah, it's they re- they have molasses flood has such an incredible pedigree of developers and creatives working there, and their understanding and presentation of interactive storytelling is just so yeah, good. They could do a Witcher survival game. Yeah, they could. Or I Witcher think roguelike. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They could do something like that. I would. I'm. I'm excited. I think Project Serious is going to be super cool. Yeah. Uh, CD Projekt Red says that it plans to release the next mainline Witcher trilogy games in a six-year period, starting with the release of the game currently codenamed Polaris. So that's the first main game in this new trilogy. Okay. That means that CD Projekt Red anticipates an approximate three-year development cycle for games two and three in the trilogy. I think that's extremely ambitious based on based on CD Projekt Red's history. Yeah, I think that if they are looking to, I don't know not crunch their people then they better have solid production pipelines they better have their ducks in a row and their producers i don't maybe they're maybe they need to be demigods i'm I, not sure i don't know no they did say that that whatever tools Anointed and tech that they, yeah, whatever <laughs> tools and tech they build and implement for polaris are going to lay the foundation 
I think that makes some big assumptions. I do too. About, um, uh, I think this is going to be a domino effect and I would be very surprised if, if those two game, if, if the clock starts when Polaris comes out, if six years later we see a release of game three, I think that would be extremely ambitious. Uh, and, and it'll be even more impressive if they manage to do that without crunching because we know that studio's history is real, real bad. Yeah. Especially in, I don't know, not telling the truth. Yeah. Well, but you we'll, can, we'll get there. You can go back and you can listen to the cyberpunk debacle yeah. from 2020 because we recorded all that way back. I think mm-hmm. that was like a hundred episodes ago. Oh my God. Don't, I think it was like episode don't 40. Don't use words like that. Don't use words like a hundred. A hundred. Okay. So old. <laughs> uh, the second game apparently is going to be developed by an external studio, which again would smooth things out, but it's also reliant on the tools and the technology and open communication. And anointed saints. I, again, this kind of goes back to the whole, um, the, the frostbite issue. Oh, the frostbite. And the issue. reason I bring that up is because if you're developing tools and tech, now I don't know if they're working, if they're working in, in Unreal Engine 5, I didn't actually look that up. So it could be that they're relying on an established tech with great documentation. I really hope so. I hope so that too. Would be, that would be the easiest, smoothest way to move forward. Exactly. However, if they're, if they're building their own tools and I, if it's an engine issue, you know, then you've got, you've got to have a repository. You've got to have people who are on hand to, that know that tech. And, and more importantly, even if it is Unreal Engine 5, know how it's implemented in the game. Yeah. Because it's not just a matter of, you know, oh, it's the same engine. We know the engine. It's a matter of, well, what did you do to make these things work? Because there needs to be consistency across these yeah, games. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so that's Unless really, Unless the really second game is a complete departure, which I'm not saying it would be, but... I don't know. I, yeah. That's a lot of speculation. I'm not really game on speculating here. Yeah. So it's a, it'll be interesting the to one, see how it shakes out. The one comment I did see was like, well, they used to release Assassin's Creed games every year or Call of Duty games. And it's like, okay, I would not use those as models of creativity. Um, you know, we knew that Ubisoft was using a very cookie cutter model. The uh, other part is Ubisoft has how many studios that all contributed to all of these so games? So many. Because yeah, there might have been different studios leading the development of those games. But, but it doesn't had, mean but that they had all of the studios, all yeah, over all the of the studios for the most part were chipping in and helping. Like these are enormous productions mm-hmm. that involve thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, and. Quite frankly, the reason why Assassin's Creed isn't an annual franchise anymore is because they ran into serious problems and stagnation. Um, it's true. Although so, Valhalla is excellent. Yeah. Uh, so Cyberpunk, CD Projekt Red has said that there is another Cyberpunk game in development in addition to the one major DLC for 2077 dropping Oh, you in know what 2023. you guys should do? You should hire some trans writers. Yeah. Yeah, that game had issues. Now, we know that it spiked in terms of popularity because of the Edge Runners Netflix animated series. I mean... Which, but we can't forget. Like... You can't forget how they started. And it's, it's not about... Oh, why, why can't Mike and Manda let sleeping dogs lie? These are, these are not sleeping dogs. These dogs are very much awake and alive. So I think it's really important that when we talk about accountability, that the best way that you can, you can demonstrate growth and remain accountable to your fan base and remain accountable to the industry at large is in fact to make different choices and to ensure that the mistakes that you've made before are not made again. It isn't about being perfect. It's about ensuring that when you make when you make your next round of choices, that the outcome is different. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've covered kind of the issues, the crunch culture, lying to, um, to their investors. Oh, not just their investors, um, the public. Too. Well, and also and the, the restrictions around the reviews, not being people, not being able to capture their own footage and screenshots. Like not there's a lot cool. of issues. Um, last note here on CD Projekt Red before we move on, co-CEO Mar- uh, Marcinowinski uh, is stepping down from his role effective December 31st. He is seeking the role of supervisory board chairman, though, so he'll still be involved in the company. Got it. And that is that. Oof. Lots of big updates from CDPR. All right, let's talk about Riot. Riot has announced the purchase of Wargaming Sydney's, Wargaming's Sydney studio, formerly known as Big World. The studio was purchased in 2012 for $45 million. The publishing team at that location will stay with Wargaming, while the development team will be rebranded as Riot Sydney. Big World, which was founded in 2002, created a popular live service technology that has supported more than 30 MMOs. Now, remember that MMOs really went through the height of their heyday throughout the aughts, so that's actually pretty enormous. Wargaming will still own that tech, with the development team supporting Riot's live service games. Yep, so they just deaccessioned some of this, yep. which is really interesting. It's a it's a much more holistic way of looking at it. Like no one's gonna lose their jobs because mm-hmm. Wargaming is still gonna keep their PR and support staff and their technology, and Riot's just gonna take the developers off their hands, yep. I guess. And support live service. Yeah. That'd be interesting. All right. Um, this is our last investment story, but it is it's a absolutely enormous. There's a lot that's happened uh, in the story around Microsoft's proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Yep. Uh, in fact, just before we came in to record this, Jez Corden wrote a very interesting piece over on Windows Central talking about, well, what happens if this doesn't go through? What happens if the CMA, which is the Competitive Markets Authority in the UK, refuses to budge? And says that, no, 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 Microsoft can't do this. It's going to harm competition. And blink, blink. ultimately, I think Jez's analysis is is really interesting about how this could ultimately bite Sony in the ass. Yeah, I'd imagine. So, and not just in terms of acquisitions, but in terms of the message it sends. Uh, Jez lands on the point of where it's like, well, okay, well, if what you're telling us is that we have to do business like Sony, what that means is Microsoft taking that $70 billion that's not spending on Activision and throwing it at third-party developers to make potentially entire franchises console exclusive, at least for a limited time. Imagine taking that money and throwing it at Monster Hunter, for instance, and saying, well, now Monster Hunter is uh, timed exclusive on Xbox. Or taking that money and throwing it at any popular series that has that was originally on PlayStation because Sony has thrown money. You know, look, at, look under- at Square Enix and look at Understandably yeah. so, for crying out loud. And since when do we look at you know, Sony Interactive Entertainment and be like, oh, you guys shouldn't have console exclusives. Yeah, it's nobody. Like, nobody I mean, does that. It's it, So it's really interesting, the messaging that this could all send, this could be this could be a monkey's paw crawling. Kind um, of. So here's what's happened since the last time we talked about this. Um, just as a reminder that Call of Duty seems to be at the heart of this, it is at least the heart of the com- the conversation that has gone on in Brazil. Right. And in Which has kind of been a, a big battleground right. for them. Brazil too. was a large battleground and ultimately... Uh, it is now approved. Brazil has approved this without restriction. Yeah. And they didn't bite on Sony's arguments. Um, One thing that that caught me, because this is very different than what we'll talk about with the UK, um, Brazil did not bite on on Sony 
on Sony's claims that Nintendo doesn't count. Um, Nintendo, the reason, so in the UK, and we'll get... We'll, like, it's one thing for us to say Nintendo's going to do whatever Nintendo's going to do, but Nintendo counts. Right, and especially in the Switch generation where they have had more violent games, more adult-leaning games uh, than we have seen on Nintendo consoles in the past. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so what Brazil said was Nintendo does extremely well, despite not having Call of Duty. So mm-hmm. the argument that you can't compete without Call of Duty doesn't really hold any water. Quote, there's no evidence that Activision Blizzard games actually represent an indispensable asset for Sony's competitive performance. And a key piece of Sony's argument is that Call of Duty users would flee to Xbox. Of course, Microsoft's response, both in Brazil and in the UK, is that that actually doesn't make financial sense for us. No, it doesn't. Because again, we we talk about it all the time. The most important thing you can do is widen your addressable market, right? If they were to shrink that market to only Xbox or only PC, they would be missing out on an entire platform that's going to bring them some sincere revenue. Mm -hmm. And Brazil acknowledges that if, you know, Call of Duty ever went console exclusive, it would represent a competitive advantage, but not one that would limit competition. In other words, Sony would still be able to surmount it. Yep, they Bungie could. says hi. Yeah, exactly. They have a number of studios that could develop military shooters. And quite frankly, there is room now. Uh, Battlefield, the last Battlefield entry really... Not much. It, it, Not much going on there. Yeah, so there's there's some room there. And I think we've moved away from the from the era where there's so many so many military shooters. Well, that I, for a long time, that's all, that's all it was. Like, yeah. we have Medal of Honor. We had Battlefield. We have Call of Duty. We had... Army of Two. Like, we had different flavors of, of military shooters yeah. over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I mean, hell, even... Um, oh, shoot. The really good one that takes place in Dubai... With the sand and... That's really helpful. No, it's... Uh, the line? Spec Ops? Spec Ops, yes, thank you. Are you, you. You're talking about the game that I haven't played that somehow I remember because every time that we talk about any military shooter, if it doesn't involve talking about Spec Ops, the line, I have to check your temperature. Yeah, because that game's amazing. <laughs> that game has amazing storytelling. And you're missing out. Um, oh my gosh. I'm just going to say that. Just, okay. just going to put that out there. No, I appreciate for, for that. You I, for my you personal education. And our listeners. For my personal education for in your, narrative design is yeah. what you're saying. Oh, I actually think so. Yes. This is now a very good Oh, I see. This. Oh, he just, this guy. I, I mean, this guy. you were the one who said it, not me. Is this gal? Yeah. Oh, I did it to me. Uh, so here's also what they said. Now, this is a lot, and we've dropped this in. There is a, uh, a, an, a, a competition lawyer who uh, speaks Portuguese, who has been in Resetero, who's been translating all the stuff. So I dropped the link to that. It's really good. Um, Despite the undeniable popularity of Call of Duty, the series dominance in the best-selling video game list is not in itself an indication that Activision Blizzard holds a dominant position in the game publishing market. In 2021, has already seen the company's games catalog earned worldwide a market share of 0 to 10% in the PC game segment and of 0 to 10% in console games. Percentages that, although they are quite expressive when compared to the shares held by most competitors, seem insufficient to give Activision Blizzard a leadership position. In Brazil, the company's share in the game publishing market is even less representative. So what they're saying is that when you compare Call of Duty, Call of Duty's market share to any other individual property, yeah, it's pretty significant. But if you look at the whole market, Call that of Duty part. does not eat enough of the pie that it represents a anti-competitive issue. Exactly. Because, I mean, we look at the big tentpoles of the year and it's usually what? Call of Duty and then a bunch of sports games. Right. But it, Call of Duty 
you know, obviously, you know, we're waiting on Modern Warfare 2 and we'll see what happens. But Elden Ring right now is the biggest game of the year so far. And by the way, Sony made a minority investment in From Software. So... I feel like a lot of this just isn't holding water. Is yeah, what we're it, to it say. doesn't. Um, one other note from the Brazil CADE documents: um, we have a sense of Game Pass revenues for the first time. It appears that Game Pass revenue for the fiscal year ending January 2021, or the fiscal period ending January 2021. I assume that's a a. Um, I don't know if this is cumulative or twelve month. Uh, was two point nine billion dollars. That's incredible. It is. Uh, it doesn't include PC Game Pass. This is just console whoa and it's unclear whether this includes a portion of game pass ultimate which gives you both xbox and pc game pass yeah whether it includes software sales connected with game pass because remember when games start to rotate off you get that discount it's a deep um, discount it is too. It's like 20 percent uh or in-game or dlc content purchased by people playing the game pass playing the game via game pass access but then owning that dlc yeah or you know the goodness ad- knows we've done that before with sure. a bunch of with a bunch of different games mostly for me racing games right and because microsoft has has done right by forza owners who have purchased dlc they'll just turn around oh this game's being delisted from sale we're just going to give you a copy of it because you made a purchase connected to it exactly which is great so in the uk um things are not leaning in the same direction no they're enough. not and it's a real weird situation yeah, so th- apparently things are leaning more towards Sony, but it's really unclear how the UK Competitive Market Authority, or the CMA, is analyzing this, because some of the assertions that they're making don't make a whole lot of sense. No. And this is, by the way, not a new decision. This is an expansion of, we now have the full text of the decision that they made to refer this to phase two. Right. So they didn't just approve it on phase one. They said, oh, we need to look deeper at this. So we're going to do a phase which, two investigation. Which is fine. I don't think that there's anything wrong with doing with doing this kind of analysis. But I also think that if you're allowing yourself to be swayed by a giant multinational corporation when your job is to be, is to look at the the competitive marketplace in your in your in your country or your territories like you're doing something wrong yeah and sony lobbying because that's kind of what it feels like they're doing is they're lobbying yes oh it it definitely feels like there's there's some conversations happening behind the scenes because you know it feels like what's happening here is is sony's talking points are getting parroted by the cma right without critical analysis which is really troubling it is extremely it's extremely troubling. troubling because the the CMA is leaning on Microsoft, quote, foreclosing Sony. Yeah, technical term. It is a very technical term. Um, that is to say, making Call of Duty exclusive. So Microsoft, again, we have said this many times, Microsoft has repeatedly said that it is not financially viable to do this. Widen your addressable market. Do not shrink it. Yes. Additionally, doing so would harm both the Xbox and and Call of Duty brands. According which, to Microsoft. According which to I, Microsoft. I, which I agree with, I by agree. the way. I think that Microsoft would take it on the chin if they said, guess what? New Call of Duty not coming to... I don't... It just... It wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. This is an established franchise that's been around since the early aughts. Right? It just... Yeah. It wouldn't work. Oh, if you hear any jingling, that's that's our tiny dog. He, he came, came in to, to say, say hi. Hi, buddy. He jumped up to say hi. What's up, bud? He just wants to be a part of the show so yep. bad, everyone. Yes. And normally his contr- contributions to the show is barking. Yes. Right now he's just being friendly. He's just being a sweet boy. Okay. Big so yeah. the company has said that it is willing to engage in contractual process 
to ensure that this to assure that this doesn't happen. Yeah, and but the problem is the CMA has turned around and said, well, contracts can be changed. I mean, sure, yeah. Why is this a thing though? I, I, again, I don't know. Um, it it seems really strange to me. Right. Okay, but you you made you made a point here. Yeah. About the CMA. It erroneously stating that, quote, Microsoft's past business practices suggest that it may be willing to make losses in the short term in order to build scale and increase its user base. We know what who they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it sounds like they're talking about Bethesda. Now, there have not been any releases yet that are micro, that are Xbox console exclusive. Starfield will be the first one. Yep. Deathloop, there was already a deal. By the way, there was already a deal prior to the acquisition where Sony threw money at Bethesda for Deathloop and Ghostwire Tokyo to be to be exclusives. timed exclusives. Again, the messaging here is you can it's throw okay money, you us. just can't own them. Yeah, you can, it's okay for us to do it, but it's not okay for you guys to do it. Right, but even with regard to Bethesda, you have to look at the track record. They did not pull Elder Scrolls Online no. off. I, I, Why would they? I am curious what's going to happen with Elder Scrolls 6. Quite we'll frankly, that's a, that's an established franchise. We'll have to see. I think that they're going to have to do some dig some some digging on that to ensure that they're not alienating large segments yep. of their of their audience. So Starfield's a new IP. I'm not surprised that it is that it, it is a sense. console exclusive. Yeah, it makes so, sense. But Minecraft, like this was a big fear when when Microsoft bought Mojang. They're like, oh, you're going to pull Minecraft off of PlayStation. And they're like, no, 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 we're not. And they Why also released do that? Microsoft Dungeons. And I think um, Microsoft, Minecraft Dungeons, right? Minecraft Dungeons and Minecraft Legends is that the new one? The that's going to be the new one. That's yeah. the RTS. Um, I think that's releasing on PlayStation as well. Um, Fallout seventy six is still on PlayStation. Um, obviously, Deathloop launched with in turn in line with the contractual agreements. So did Ghostwire Tokyo, where it was a PlayStation exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this was the one that I think is really interesting. Deathloop came to PlayStation Plus. Uh, on one of the the upper tiers yep. the same day it launched on xbox and game pass so microsoft didn't even like I, and this was probably part of the contract i would imagine but microsoft didn't you know didn't say okay well it's launching on xbox and game pass so now nobody's gonna buy it on playstation which of course isn't the way this works no it's specifically not and we've talked about the big philosophical differences between these two companies mm-hmm. essentially since we started this show yes like again a hundred plus episodes ago. Why are you attacking me? I mean, technically I'm attacking both of us. Sometimes okay. she protect, sometimes she attack. Mostly okay. she just likes snack. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I can appreciate this. So the philosophical differences are really what's at, pl- at, at the heart of what's at play here, right? Mm-hmm. Microsoft is building an ecosystem. Sony is building a platform. There is a difference. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft um, reminded the CMA that it is and has been in third place, which I think was really interesting. Um, Though the CMA is like, oh yeah, Nintendo doesn't count because of the family-friendly approach. Y'all, you could play- Catch up. Just freaking catch up. Like you can play so many cool horror games and so many weird- You can play freaking Doom on a Switch right now. Technically, I can play Doom on a fridge. Okay, I meant the new Doom. Oh, you're t- oh, okay. You're talking about the new Doom. Okay. Oh yeah, because remember Animal Crossing and Doom came out at yeah. the same time. That was hilarious. It's like, which one do I play? The answer is yes. I will play them both. Yeah. So, um, 
the CMA also says that Azure is part of the reason it's concerned about the acquisition, though it also asserted that Xbox Cloud Gaming and Game Pass rely on Azure, but neither of them rely on Azure. Good job, everybody. You you got it wrong. Okay. Do so some basic research. Take us home. Yeah. Take us home. Um, Microsoft issued their own kind of responses to the CMA, um, obviously rejecting the CMA's assertion that Sony couldn't compete, suggesting it instead chooses not to compete, specifically with Game Pass, by keeping PlayStation exclusive games off the service until long after they launch. It's true. They had first mover advantage. How often have we said that PlayStation Now was first to market? They could have done their own Xbox Game Pass. Listen, it's like when Justin Timberlake said back in the aughts, right? I'm bringing sexy back, but sexy actually never left. This is what Sony's doing. They're like, but sexy never left. You're just mad because we made sexy back. Yeah. What? <laughs> I, yes, sexy. I don't know. This is, it's yeah. a very stupid thing. I've been, I've been on an aughts <laughs> tear lately and I'm like, oh no, this is going to show up in weird places. I mean, the interesting thing here is that Microsoft drawing the distinction between- They just mad. Well, it's the difference between we can't compete and we won't compete is what Microsoft is saying. And exactly. Microsoft is saying if Sony wanted to to really take a run at Game Pass, they could make all of their exclusive games part of PlayStation Plus on day one. The moment they come out, God of War, Horizon, every single game, they could just make it. And, and then it would be there would be parity there. And they would. But they choose not to do that. Because they have, they're looking for a platform, not an ecosystem. Exactly. Um, so here's the interesting thing. Obviously, Call of Duty is at the center here. But Sony also recently reaffirmed its push into mobile. And I'm wondering if part of this, because there is no leg to stand on with regard to mobile, is that Sony is afraid of Microsoft suddenly having this huge presence in mobile with King. Right. And I can understand that because obviously mobile is a big push for some of the biggest publishers, you know, and we'll talk about this in a little mm -hmm. bit when we talk about what's going on over at Take Two mm. and Zynga. So... I can understand the concern there. And at the same time, this is not the way. No. This is not the way. It's bad, actually. You know, because PlayStation Worldwide studio head Herman Holtz told Axios that Sony does plan to build up its internal capacity in the mobile space. But this is another thing. You all had the funds to do this years ago. And you did do this years ago. And then you spun it all mm -hmm. down. And now you want to spin it back up because suddenly mobile is more important. This is what happens when you are a slow mover in this industry. Yep. It's uh And they are a slow mover. Like I'm not I'm not saying that they'll always be this way and they're this way about everything. They're still they have some of the best single player titles mm -hmm. out there. And they on have a, their they platform. have like a dozen live service games in development according to I think the Axios interview with Herman Holtz. Yeah, for sure. So I mean they need to chill out. Yeah. This I, isn't the way. This is, this is Jim Ryan. Jim Ryaning. Jim Ryaning. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's Jim Ryan, Andrew Ryaning. What's up? <laughs> no golf clubs for that man. Uh, so yeah, that's everything for investment interlude. <laughs> I, think I, I think I broke Mike. I'm so sorry. Um, I need a break. <laughs> Why do you need a break from uh, this whole <laughs> situation? My bad. 
Virtual Economy is an F-squared initiative, and along with pro bono business consulting for up-and-coming developers, it's a way we are working to give back to the community that has already given us so much. To find out more about F-squared and the services we can provide, including pitch prep, media training, mock reviews, and business strategy guidance, visit our website at fsquared.biz. And now that Mike's brain is less broken, potentially, Ish, maybe. <laughs> we're back. But hey, Mike. Yes? What time is it? It's time for Quick Hits. Oh, there we go. Beautiful. Oh, I thank you. All right, lead us off. What do we got? We got a bunch of Quick Hits today. We do. We have lots of Quick Hits. All right, Square Enix Montreal has rebranded finally to become Studio Anoma under Embracer Group. But the real question is, why the name? I don't know why the name is. So, Anoma is apparently Greek for name. And names offer endless possibilities, according to their big... Um, rebrand announcement, which is very cool. So apparently the rebranding team tested 165 names until they found Anoma, which is just as easy to say in English as it is in French. Oh, that's good. Which is important given their Montreal roots. So I'm excited for them. You know, Square Enix Montreal has like lots of people that I really, really like, including the lovely lady who penned the whole rebranding article in Nejima, who is a doll. So you know what, Anoma, Studio Anoma, I'm happy for you. Yeah. Go off and make really cool mobile games now. Yeah. Uh, a, this one, so that was Square e Enix adjacent. This is mm -hmm. a Square Enix hit. Final Fantasy XIV has hit a whopping 27 million registered players. This is up from 24 million a year ago. Uh, it is a pillar uh, for revenue from the games, the games business. For Square Enix, like it yeah. still trucks right on. It's not stopping. No, everybody loves that Final Fantasy fourteen. There's, you know what? Considering the work that they've done to a Realm Reborn mm -hmm. to the base game to make it less plotting and frustrating, you know what? It's a good time to play Final Fantasy fourteen, folks. Yeah. It's a good time to get into it. Yeah. You know what's not a good time? Uh, what, Manda? Starbreeze is making a return to publishing, raising these eyebrows quite a bit. Her eyebrows are, in fact, raised, folks. I'm, they are very raised They're in the eyebrows. stratosphere. They are actually above her hairline. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever played with a, with one of those character creators and you could bring the eyebrows like above, <laughs> like floating above the face. That's pretty much what my eyebrows are doing yeah. right now. Um, Starbreeze has signed with development studio Walking Tree Games to publish its upcoming game, The Tribe Must Survive. I don't want to go into all of the ways in which this seems like a bad idea other than Starbreeze has been restructuring since 2018. This has been a four year war for these folks. And like, I, I really do. I I'm pulling for them. I'm, mm -hmm. you know, you know us, right? We're pro developer. We want to see things go. We want to see people survive and thrive and, and, and get back on that horse. But man, does this make me nervous? Yeah. They had 10 games, I believe in. Well, they were supposed to publish Psychonauts pipeline. too. Yeah, they were. They, they, there were a lot of games in there that they were supposed to publish mm -hmm. and they just, I think the new system shock was one of them as well. Oh. Um, I have to go check my notes on that one, but there were a number of high profile games in their publishing pipeline that they're just like, we're out of money guys. We got to spin yeah. you off. Now remember that this is probably a move to diversify their revenue. More than 95% of their revenue is tied to payday. Right. And I'm, I'm all for diversification of revenue 
revenue streams. Like that's smart. I'm just, I'm nervous. It makes me nervous because I really, really hope specifically for the developers um, over at Walking Tree Games, I just be careful, y'all. Yeah. Uh, Meta has announced acquisition of three more VR studios. These include Resident Evil 4 VR and ReCore developer Armature. Wow. Wilson's Heart and Splosion Man developer Twisted Pixel. Dang. And Iron Man VR and Republic developer Camouflage. Wow. Uh, Iron Man VR also coming to Quest 2 now. Uh, along with that, Meta has announced that its next headset is called the MetaQuest Pro and is available at the low, low, low price of fifteen hundred dollars i can buy a laptop for that i i don't it is targeted at the prosumer market and i I, it's like seven people i mean (laughs) i mean mean, i'm exact i'm exaggerating but we have been when i wrote the cover story story for game informer on vr which was january 2016 2016's cover story there was an understanding that there was going to be a ramp up an acquisition like here we are we are now six, six years. years later, and Almost I feel like seven at this point. I feel like we are still at the well. People will eventually come around to VR, and I don't think that's the case. I I gotta wonder, guys. I think I think this might not be the case. The additional part is like, the reason it's why meta cool technology. Yeah, like, like we can we can be really clear on this. It is cool technology, yeah. but again, who is this for? Well, this is for Mark Zuckerberg because he believes that VR is such a huge piece of the metaverse. But here's the thing. What people want to do for social for social uh, interactions online in terms of interactive social interactions is Fall Guys and Fortnite and other games like that. Uh, by the way, I just mentioned two games that Epic owns. So I, I feel like VR does not need to be a, a core pillar of whatever the metaverse ends up being. So I, I I have a funny feeling, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is not giving up on this. And this might actually be the thing that really starts to tank Meta. And I'm sorry, but with Facebook causing as much harm as it has, uh, both to society and to individuals, uh, I'm not super sad about Meta potentially going through some tough times. Yeah. 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 I mean, I genuinely, again, it comes down to the workers, um, but whew. Yeah. Uh, good luck, I guess. Yeah, good Let's luck. See. $1,500. I don't know good anybody luck. who is going to drop 1500 bucks on a VR headset. In this economy? I know we joke about that. Yeah, but seriously, but in this literally economy. in this economy, you're an idiot. Yeah. This is this is a tone, like, this the, is a tone not deaf con- product. Not for consumers. Like, if you want to buy this, power to you. But at the same time, Meta thinking that they are going to do anything other than very, very low lift on this. Yeah. How does this further? I don't see how this furthers VR adoption at that price point. It doesn't. And this is after they raise the prices. And between them and Sony raising prices and raising the barrier to entry for, you know, for loss leaders, it's just like, okay, you're making choices, I guess. Uh, good luck. Uh, let's move off of Meta because it makes me mad every time. <sighs> every time. Makes me sad and mad. Makes but you know what will make me happy? Feelings. 
Well, you know it'll make you happy though. Well, well, gonna make We're going to talk about Renegade games. I do love Renegade games. I know you do. They've actually announced that they are planning on deepening their relationship with Hasbro. I am happy Rene- about this. So Renegade has previously secured licenses for Power Rangers, My Little Pony, G.I. Joe, and Transformers, mm-hmm. all of which received games in multiple genres, including deck building, cooperative strategy, and tabletop RPG. I just got my hardcover copy of the Transformers RPG and my dice and my dice bag. I'm very happy about that. Oh no, I'm going to be a Transformer over... Over the Christmas break, I'm you might sure. you might be a transformer. We have so much Warhammer to put together, though. Like that's got to be the. Priority. I don't want to talk about the Warhammers right now. Okay, so now Renegade will ha- be handling reprints for big games under the Avalon Hill label, including Axis and Allies, Robo Rally, Diplomacy, and Squad Leader. There are also new games coming from Renegade in the Axis and Allies line, with hopes to also bring back out of print versions on a rotating basis. This that's is smart. Really, really yeah. cool. Renegade will also be making new versions of Risk set in the worlds of Power Rangers, Transformers, and G.I. Joe. That could actually be really cool. I wouldn't mind playing like a like a Risk Transformers. There was one back when, but it was based around the very first Transformers movie. I would play a G1 Transformers Risk game. Absolutely. Like, I, I, I would love to play a Risk game that was about the fall of Cybertron. Like, that actually would be really interesting to me. That would be neat, me. too. Yeah, absolutely. That would be really interesting to me. The fact that I actually have that language is very funny I to me. I it so much. It's working. Oh, no! Yeah. Uh, another tabletop story. Asmodee has announced a new program called Welcome by Asmodee. Uh, through this program, Asmodee is going to leverage its distribution network to help external publishers with distribution solutions, uh, also offering related services like translation and localization. So you Huge. don't have to be published by Asmodee, but they're but they're going to leverage their distribution. Network, I love that, which is great. I, I it's smart. It's it, it's a smart revenue stream for them. Yeah, and it it's a do good revenue yes. stream as well. Absolutely. All right, moving right along, Bloober teams the medium will be finding fresh audiences. In a TV show. Oh. Platige Image, which was the studio behind The Cathedral, a short, beloved cult science fiction film from 2002, will be taking on the story. Tomas Baginski, who directed and wrote The Cathedral, will be supervising the medium's production. Baginski is also the executive producers of Netflix's The Witcher and Direction of the Night, and the director of the upcoming film Knights of the Zodiac. Very interesting. I think that'll be super cool. Yeah. There were some there were some choice quotes in the article that I read, but mostly it was about like we're all just really excited about nice. this. And honestly, I'm really excited about this, especially if they can nail they can nail what made the made the game feel good to play in that split screen format. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be really interesting. Yeah, and having uh, a Polish creative lead on this, I think, is important because of how rooted in. Uh, Poland uh, post-Cold War. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That, that game really was. Yeah. Um, all right. A tattoo artist has won a copyright case against Take-Two. The suit was brought by Catherine Alexander against the publisher for work she did uh, that is tattooed on WWE performer Randy Orton. The tattoo was reproduced in the game without her permission, and the jury did not buy Take-Two's fair use argument. Alexander was awarded $3,750 in damages. Now, this suit was filed all the way back in 2009, which is why you might remember it. Because uh, it has popped up multiple times. It has. And uh, Take-Two refused to sign a licensing deal with Alexander, instead offering her a piddly $450. Uh, there was a partial summary judgment in 2020, but the judge referred it to trial because it was unclear if Alexander and Orton had worked out implied licensing or sub-licensing. Right. 
So we covered that in 2020. We did. And it's a story that I think I also covered along the way at Game Informer because it resurfaced. Uh, but th this other suit definitely also surfaced while I was at Game Informer. Um, this isn't the first about tattoo art in which uh, Take-Two was a defendant. Uh, Take-Two won the first of these, though, back in 2016 on a fair use argument. So... Oh, that's, a, well, bad, why that's they, a bad precedent. So they won one on a fair use argument. They lost this on a fair use argument. There's not a lot of money here. Like $37.50 is not is like a rounding error of a rounding error for Take-Two. Of a rounding error. Like it is such a small amount of money. So why are for they Take -Two. fighting this? I think because of precedent. Like my guess is they will probably even appeal this because this sets a precedent where other, where they are now obligated for every, uh, every real live athlete who is tattooed, they would have to go to the tattoo artist if there's not already... Oh. I know. I I'm just saying that they are probably very unhappy about the fact that this could cause a big wrinkle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As the, as the local mouth fart commentator around Yeah, here. well, you know, no one does it better. There it is. Duck fart. All right, uh, let's wrap up. Quick hits. All right, EA is off to a strong start with FIFA 23, the last game from the publisher that will carry the FIFA brand. After this, it's going to be EA Football Club? Yes, yep. EAFC. The first week of the game saw 10.3 million players, a franchise record. And I, I'm not going to say this is because of Ted Lasso, but I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that that brought people who wouldn't normally play a FIFA game to the table because people... I mean, what's not to love I mean, about Ted love Lasso? Ted Lasso and AFC Richmond. Yeah, that's understandable. Um, also in EA News, to close out Quick Hits, the Origin client is finally being phased out into the sunset. Uh, the new EA client is out of beta. Um, neither are terribly well-liked in the gaming community, so we'll see if this new attempt smooths some of the problems. One thing I did note, uh, there was an embargo lift on uh, the Dead Space remake. And there was a number of stories that hit the fact that it will not require EA's client to play if you buy it on Steam. So in the past, okay. if you buy, if you were to buy an EA game on Steam... It would just link you directly over yep. to their sometimes very buggy client. Exactly. So that is everything. We actually had a chunky amount of quick hits. Of course, this is our first show in like two weeks, so... Oh boy! Everything has been a lot. It has been a lot. We've been we've been buried in work, but we really wanted to record this, especially after some of the stuff that happened this weekend. Ah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> and those were quick hits. Got it in one. Yeah. All right, now we're moving right along to a very, very chunky labor report. Remember how we said that we didn't have a whole lot going on at the top of the show except for investment interlude? Yeah, not a whole lot going on at the bottom of the show, except for the labor reports. Yeah, kicking off with Activision. God, I cannot oh. wait until this story ends. And hopefully that, that ends with Microsoft acquiring Activision, getting rid of the toxic leadership and unionization happening because Microsoft has, you know, agreed to be uh, labor neutral. Yeah. Right. Uh, Activision has been hit with another sexual harassment suit. A woman whose identity is being withheld from the public uh, has sued the publisher, alleging that product manager Miguel Vega inappropriately touched her and sexually harassed her, uh, also threatened to blackmail her with photos he had from years earlier when the two had an online friendship. Vega was investigated and fired by Activision, but the suit says that the company accepted the behavior by not acting 
sooner. If it went on for a number of years, then yeah. Yeah. Uh, Activision has also been found to have improperly withheld raises from unionizing Raven Software QA workers. We covered this back when uh, they announced that they were going to be giving raises, except to the to the Raven QA workers who were unionized. Oh, because we can't we can't do that. It's against the law. Uh, interestingly, the NLRB says, uh, "No, what are you talking about? Uh, this is not the way. This is not the way." And says that Activision action actually acted inappropriately. Uh, finally. In the, Activision store, in the Activision piece of the labor report, the company has announced that board member Lulu Chang Maservi is stepping down to become the publisher's executive vice president, corporate affairs, and chief communications officer. It's a brand new position. Of note, Chang Maservi was one of the three board members who was responsible for clearing Activision Blizzard of any wrongdoing in an internal investigation. Remember when Activision Blizzard oh, said Activision Blizzard didn't do anything wrong? Yeah, I remember that. We yeah. memed the heck out of that. Yeah, well, I'm memeing it right now. I'm calling this one Gifts for Griffs. Oh, man, that's beautiful. Yeah, not great. All right, Amanda. Speaking uh, of not great things. Yeah, while we were, you know, in the last two weeks, uh, TwitchCon happened. No, and no. oh, uh, boy. You know, I toyed with going to TwitchCon because this, it's not even just because it's my quote unquote beat because I'm not, I'm not a journalist anymore, mm-hmm. but from an analysis perspective, getting to know, you know, that, that segment of, of the audience of consumers and everything like that would have been really beneficial. And also, you know, Mike and I are on a break from streaming right now because of our current office situation, but we're streamers too. Yeah. I thought about going. I really did. Yeah. And then I found out. Yeah. Through- oh, oh, there's one that you, there's one that, there's one that, that didn't say, they, they were, remember the mask thing around TwitchCon where they were like, no, 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 you're not going to have to wear a mask. And they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, we changed our mind. You're going to have to wear a mask. Yeah, but you definitely didn't need to wear yeah, a mask. Yeah, people were not enforcing that. Okay, so anyway, we're not going, we're not there yet. We're not there we're yet. We're not there yet. Oh my okay. God, so much. So TwitchCon was a disaster. Oh God, it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. There's an enormous thread on Twitter. Some of, some people have deleted their tweets because they were probably getting harassed uh-huh. because the thread went viral whatever that sucks and yeah so let's just talk about twitchcon first from everything that we saw online there were crushing lines lack of accessibility options for folks with disabilities or they were just straight up being co-opted by able-bodied folks Oh, yeah, that. There was a liability nightmare that was the foam pit that broke, that a streamer broke her back in two places, and two other streamers that jumped into the foam pit dislocated their knees. Um, there, there were so many things at TwitchCon that were just nightmarish, and the mask mandate, again, was another one of those things that just didn't happen. Everything was over capacity. Mm-hmm. The organization was non-existent. And listen, Mike and I have been to a lot of shows over the over the course of our many years, either covering the game industry or now that we are, you know, we're analysts and consultants and stuff like that, you know, going there for business meetings. We know how gnarly these conventions can get. We've seen PAX when it was PAX Prime. Yeah. Right? And that at its peak was tens of thousands of people every single day. Mm-hmm. But those enforcers, they kept things moving. Oh, yeah. And they kept things tidy and organized every year. Going to PAX West is a dream as a result. Mm-hmm. TwitchCon, on the other hand, nightmare. an absolute nightmare. So the company has a lot of work to do if they want if they want people, both creators and fans alike, to return it all. Yeah. Because what I what I saw was 
don't bother going to TwitchCon today. You know, they are turning people away at the door after they've been in line for an hour because they don't have, you know, they have a bag that's larger than a belt bag or a sling bag or something like that, or it's not clear. You know, they're just turning you away. Um, If you are, if you have a physical disability, they're basically laughing you out of line. You know, like, it's just... They didn't know where to send people who needed wheelchair access. The the thing that gets me is like the oh you want a you want a quicker line just go get yourself just go get yourself just an go get an accessibility bag. sticker yeah and sh- that's it's like so oh. disgusting in so many ways is that disgusting honestly if you want to go read about the nightmare that was TwitchCon go and check out Nathan Grayson's coverage over on the Washington Post he is probably one of the best people that was on the scene not only interviewing folks which we're gonna get to in a second to talk about the rupture. But also just being eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And he would confirm that even though the energy was electric, the execution was garbage. Yeah. So let's talk about the rupture. Twitch has acknowledged that the 50-50 split is the best that they can do, period, ever. That's ridiculous. Uh, In a conversation with Twitch's chief monetization officer, Mike Minton, Washington Post's Nathan Grayson, said that a portion of that reason is because of Prime subscriptions. Let me get into this. So this is directly from, this is what, this is what Nathan wrote in his piece, which you should go read because it's excellent. Amazon pays streamers as though these are standard $5 subscriptions made directly, meaning that streamers receive $2.50 per subscription, despite viewers not actually spending that $5 Mm -hmm. directly. Mm -hmm. In 2021, there were 41 million Prime subscriptions in use across the platform, which likely cost Amazon a pretty penny. That said, it bears noting that Prime subs are a wonderful promotional tool for for Amazon, Amazon Prime, which increasingly looks to be a linchpin in Amazon's entire product ecosystem. Even as it spends, it benefits. And again, that's all from Nathan's article. Yeah. I think that I think that, that is a really important piece of information is that if if Amazon considers prime subscriptions on Twitch to be same as cash and they're paying all of that out essentially to each person that uses their their prime subscription to whichever streamer, mm-hmm. your free prime subscription on Twitch. Like I could see how that would cost them a lot of money and at the same time it is something that is mutually beneficial. And I want to know what percentage of prime subscribers use their prime sub like i i'm on twitch and i still forget to use it every month yeah i usually forget to use it i tend to use it with um one of the seguins each month and i think that that's usually where i put it but it's yeah okay so anyway during the uh, patch notes keynote during twitchcon which according again to nathan was there was almost nobody in that theater and apparently there was no content like yeah. there wasn't any reason to be in the theater. No, there wasn't any. So, quote, streamers presume Amazon can step in. But the thing to understand here is that Amazon expects Twitch to be able to thrive in financially as an independent, sustainable business. Sure, we can understand that in terms of the way discrete business units tend to work. And, as Mike has his hand up. Okay. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Bear with us. If your business can only 
be sustainable and thrive by underpaying creatives, then your business is not sustainable and is not thriving. Correct. That gets to the heart of the matter. So Minton went into a lot of the same stuff that we heard um, as a result of user voice, right? Mm -hmm. All the stuff that we've already talked about, we can't do it because it's really expensive to stream and to provide high quality video. Um, He addressed the challenges around pre-roll ads. They're trying to fix it, I guess, and figure out something that's more equitable. I'm also seeing from a lot of Twitch partners that the new the new ad contracts that they're sending out or the new ad offers that they're sending out would require uh-huh. streamers to work even harder. Yeah, they want streamers to crunch. They're expecting streamers to crunch, yeah. more specifically. Twitch and, is and broken. It's, it doesn't work. It, like This model is inherently broken. And look, there are other streaming platforms that you could go on as well. And I'm not even just talking about you know Facebook gaming or... Um, or YouTube gaming, you know, there's smaller ones, like there's tanky, there's caffeine, there's stuff like that, but like, you're not going to get the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. And if this is your full-time job, your hands are effectively bound. And this is bad. I'm sorry. This whole thing is, is bad. It is bad for creators. It's bad for fans. TwitchCon was bad for both. Twitch, get your shit together everyone's tired of it yep everyone like streamers are tired of it fans are tired of it we're tired of covering it quite frankly as Uh analysts like i'm so tired of twitch screwed up again yeah i am i'm about i'm about over it yep entirely all right well let's move on from from twitch being twitch all right uh, Nintendo has settled the National Labor Relations Board complaint filed by former employee Mackenzie Clifton, who was a tester working under the publisher's contracting firm, Aston Carter. We've talked about this twice already, I believe. Yes, we have. Uh, Clifton will receive $26,000 in back pay and damages. Good. Nintendo and Aston Carter are required to post a notice for at least 60 days that says that workers have the right to form, join, or assist a union, and that notice will also be emailed to employees. Good. Yeah. Good. That Good. is how it should be. That is. So the NLRB be. clearly did not find that the tweet about a random build being all red was a disclosure of sensitive information because that's nonsense. It was absolutely nonsense. They were targeting, they were targeting McKenzie. Yep. It's ridiculous. Speaking of ridiculous things, take two has decided to close play dots, which is the team behind two dots effectively terminating 65 jobs in order to fold two dots into Zynga's operations. Take-Two acquired PlayDots in 2020 for $192 million and specifically called out Two Dots in its Q1 2022 earnings report, saying it was among the largest contributors to net revenue. It's not just that quarter. It is... It is consistent. Over and over and over, Two Dots has been on that list. Yeah. It's but been here's consistent. The thing. It's the game they, they value. It's not the people. Yeah, exactly. And that for the most part, tends to fly in the face of how Zynga ran things for years. Mm-hmm. They're forever... Fr- I, I don't know. If you've ever listened to an episode where we have talked about Zynga and Zynga's earnings prior to Take-Two's acquisition, you know you know that my perspective on Zynga is that they do value their labor. They do value their studios. And when they build their forever franchises with their partner studios, they have a tendency to just fold them into Zynga entirely mm-hmm. so that the... So that it becomes a full partnership. So that, you know, the studios are able to do their thing. The publisher is able to do their thing. And everybody's just kind of working in whatever version of Harmony that looks like for that particular studio and whatever that franchise Mm -hmm. happens to be. 
And look, we knew there was going to be some reorganization when Zynga came on board. But the fact that all of these employees are located in New York, Mm -hmm. it's a huge blow to an already small development scene that has been struggling for years. Yeah, New York City is a tough, tough development scene. And as much as, you know, you hear the the adage of if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. It's doesn't that doesn't apply to games. Yeah. The game, like the gaming scene in New York is mostly comprised of indies. And like, there are some incredible games that come out of the New York indie scene. Trombone, trombone. Exactly. uh, Trombone champ. Trombone champ. And Wordle. We're both Brooklyn. Absolutely. There are some incredible studios that are working in the five boroughs. But when it comes to, you know, really established studios that ha- that are more than micro studios because a lot of these studios that are thriving are micro studios. Mm-hmm. They're small, you know, the, the, and and the New York game game dev scene has been struggling for years to attract and retain top tier talent it's because it's expensive. too it's too expensive to live in New York. It's too expensive to have a studio in New York because mm-hmm. of the price of commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. It's just. It sucks. It's the same kind of problems that we see on the other side of the continent with my home city. Yeah. With Vancouver. Like Vancouver also struggles with that because mm-hmm. unless you're working for like EA, what are your options? Yeah. Oh boy. It just sucks. And the suck keeps on coming. Yep. Microsoft has laid off hundreds of employees. Uh, first broken in reports by Business Insider, Washington Post, and Axios. Confirmed by Microsoft that they, uh, I don't think that Microsoft specified the number. But it was uh, under a thousand, but it was hundreds. It was like about a thousand. I saw oh, uh, the cuts were across the company, which currently employs one hundred eighty thousand people worldwide. Included in the layoffs were some people tied to the Xbox team, including what seems like the entirety of Studio Alpha, which is working on cloud-based AI uh, solutions for AI, military, and commercial purposes. So it was their serious gaming division, according to I think that. I don't know what that means exactly. I don't know what that means either. Yeah, but that's what it was a quote that was in, I think it was in the Axios piece. Maybe it was in the Washington Post piece. Uh, So yeah, so that's a huge bummer. And we knew that these cuts were going to come because we are heading into a downturn and we are heading into a recession. And what's the first thing that suffers? Entertainment. Entertainment is the first thing that's going to get the biggest cuts. And this is heartbreaking. So if your job has been affected by these layoffs at at microsoft or even honestly at two dots as well or uh, at play dots as well you know our our hearts genuinely go out to you and we hope that you're able to land on your feet and you get snapped up for a new job really really fast yeah all right what's next <sighs> speaking of ing- like it's just the bad news keeps on coming so uh, Playtica has shuttered seriously, which is a studio behind the wildly successful mobile game Best Fiends, citing clashing studio direction. Now we've covered Playtica or Playtica, whatever it is, multiple times because they they closed a number of locations. So this is not the first time we've seen. But we've this seen is the here. first time that we've seen them do it to to a studio that has a very successful franchise under mm-hmm. its belt. So mobilegamer.biz received this statement from Playtica, Playtica, whatever you want to call it. Um, Quote, as part of an ongoing evaluation of its global operations, Playtica will close its Helsinki operations site, consolidating the management of the Best Fiends game into its Israel and Poland offices. We will work closely with our local employees to ensure a smooth and compassionate transition. So... The big problem here mm-hmm. between Seriously and Playtica was that Seriously wanted to move on 
to invest in other games. They wanted to make new games, right? And I had a I had a conversation, I think, with Andrew a number of years ago about Best Fiends and like their strategy and what they were doing there. And I I don't play Best Fiends, but they're the way that they handle in-game monetization, or the way that they had been handling in-game monetization was smart and it wasn't it, it wasn't exploitative. However, Platica's focus was growing Best Fiends while adding more aggressive monetization to the game itself. And look, the the thing about it is that Best Fiends, their monthly revenue peaked at $9.1 million in March of this year. They're just going up. Everything's going up. Mm -hmm. And their downloads peaked in June of 2021 at 2.1 million downloads. So... This is not like the game is flagging. The only reason why they're doing this is because they, because Playtica wants to force the issue mm -hmm. in a way that seriously was not willing, was not willing to do. Nope. So again, this really sucks. And I hope all the folks that seriously are able to go out and take all of, all of the compassionate learnings that they have had over the course of Best Fiend's development cycle and through its launch and iterations over the years. And I really hope you find nothing but success in your next studio. Yeah. Oh, what a bummer. Uh, also, another... More bummers! It's been a rough go, folks. Uh, Comcast has made the decision to end production on G4 TV less than a year after launch. Um, this is heartbreaking. We actually just some, saw some folks who were involved with G4 TV uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, our thoughts go. I our thoughts go out to the entire team. Uh, this comes just a month after a round of layoffs that affected production. Yeah. Um, here's the killer. Comcast made the decision to shutter the entire operation, and the news broke via deadline, which got its hands on an internal memo that apparently went to employees. But a lot of G4 staff members found out from shares of the deadline story on social media. Yep. That is how a number of them found out they had they no longer had a job. Yep. Um, G4 TV launched just uh, under a year ago. Yep. And uh, they have a, they had a two pronged approach. They did streaming on Twitch and obviously clips on YouTube and all that stuff. Uh, and they also had a television channel. And uh, I I would say that they did not get the opportunity to really blossom. So here's, from my perspective, if I can just do a little bit of, of sure. light analysis here. Again, in part because um, I went off and I read Grayson's excellent mm -hmm. piece talking about like what in the heck happened in Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up. It was a really great article. Literally, if you do not know who Nathan Grayson is, he is doing incredible work at the Washington Post, just like Shannon Liao. Really incredible people. You should follow them both. Mm -hmm. They should be winning all the journalism awards between the two of them. Because I just, I love the work that they're doing. So Nathan in his piece talked about how one of the big issues is that they were bringing on these big name streamers that were costing tens of thousands of dollars. For a guest hosting for spot. For a guest hosting spot. Which, you know what? They're probably worth it. They're going to bring a ton of eyeballs. They're going to bring their fan bases and they're likely very much worth it. Sure. But here's the thing. Those people are coming to watch their favorite streamer. Are They weren't sticking around. No. And that should have been something they detected quickly and sure. pivoted away from. 
Absolutely. I think that the other big issue that we're running into here is because G4 used to be tech TV, it used to be like in an age before we had streaming, this is where we got our nerd shows, Mm -hmm. right? This is where we had like Leo Laporte talking to us about, you know, what the heck was going on with screensavers before it was Attack of the Show. We had, you know... Adam and Morgan on X-Play giving mm-hmm. us great reviews in conjunction with everything that was going on at um, Electric Playground mm-hmm. and, and everything that was happening over there. Like, this is what we had. That was the very limited scope that we had in the 90s, throughout the aughts, and even into the teens. We are looking at a brand new world in, in when it comes to launching new channels, where it has to be... If you are, if you want to make it go, it absolutely cannot be bloated. And it was bloated at G4. It Mm. was. They were spending a lot of money that was not sustainable to spend. And their media strategy was incredibly old school. You can't survive. And that's not a talent problem, by the way. That is a a management problem. problem. That is. That is a strategy problem in the C-suite. Yes. That's a strategy problem in the C-suite and in the executives, like all the executives. Yep. This is not coming down to the folks that are going to suffer the most, which are the producers, the writers, the on-screen talent, um, the folks that were actually really, really making it go. Mm-hmm. Right? And they were, it, it just, it sucks. The whole yep. thing sucks. It was bad strategy all the way down. As turtles all the way down. Oof. So, so our hearts go out to the great folks uh, on the creative side over at G4 TV. Bless and there you, were a lot of good ones. A lot of, a lot of good ones. Yeah. And nothing, nothing but love. And it's brutal to be in the media right now. So if you are in the media and you are listening to the show, hello, welcome. Um, stay safe yep. out there and stay sane. Yep. And if there's anything that we can do to help, please reach out. All right, our last story is the brouhaha over Bayonetta 3. Oh, man, this one was rough. Was this Saturday this came out? Sunday? Yeah. Or was this this is a one-two punch on Sunday? I don't even remember. It was. You know what? I don't really remember Time what day we did things on the weekend because the weekend we were so busy in the best way, but we were so busy. Yeah. Uh, so this is a labor story. And it is you, a labor and story. And if you're listening to this show, you probably heard some of this. Uh, Helena Taylor, who is the voice actor behind Bayonetta in the series' first two games, also in uh, Bayonetta's appearance in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, posted a series of four videos explaining why she isn't coming back to the role. Now, what Platinum and Nintendo had originally said was, oh, her schedule didn't allow it. That turns out to be not true at all, according to Taylor. Now, remember, we are hearing one side of a story. It is important to... Um, recognize that stories are often uh, deeper than one side. It's not to say that uh, what she has said is wrong, but it is important to recognize we probably don't have all the facts. But here is what Ms. Taylor had to say. She was originally low-balled by Nintendo and Platinum. Mm -hmm. Uh, She did not tell us how much that was, though. Uh, She sent a letter uh, directly to Bayonetta director Hideki Kamiya, uh, who is notoriously challenging. and now is off Twitter because he blocked so many people. His account was flagged as suspicious. And then I guess he, at least for the time being, closed his Twitter account. Uh, in response to that letter, uh, Nintendo and Platinum made Ms. Taylor a best and final offer of $4,000. Now, 
a knee-jerk reaction is, wait, so she's coming back to voice the lead character in a multi-million dollar selling game for the third time. That seems pretty low, but seems pretty low is not enough when you're talking about business like this. You want to have context. So I started asking questions as I did journalism. I did a journalism. So we want to put that number in context. We spoke with a number of voice actors and business development professionals that contract voice actors to get some context. Before we continue, Mike has actually been one of the one of the experts in distilling the complexities around voice acting in in games, and he covered the SAG-AFTRA um, strike a number of years in ago in 2016. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just I just wanted to put that in context in the re- because I'm like, I wasn't lazy about this. This is just his area of yeah. expertise. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So I wrote that piece. And at the time, like there were there were a couple of big things and I actually spoke to some really very like legendary voice actors at the time under the condition of anonymity. So I can't tell you who they are, but they're really cool. And it was nice of them to reach out because they, they shared a lot of information for that story. Um, but there were a number of things that the, that the voice actors were looking for from publishers. And one was uh, additional safety considerations. One was residuals. Yeah. Um, now that was a tougher sell at the time because this is before unionization started to started to move through uh, studios and obviously we are still at the beginnings of that we are nowhere near done but there was a real challenge around this where uh, developers were rightly upset that there was no profit sharing that there's no there was no residuals for them but voice actors coming in for a relatively small portion of the time were looking for residuals um so so that there was a point of friction there i think that conversation will change over time as we see unionization take root and we start to see more profit sharing and residuals for creatives that work on games uh, in, in a development capacity. Mm-hmm. So I think that conversation will change. Um, but they needed they needed better rates. They needed um, some limits on uh, on sessions because vo- voice acting is very straight, uh, stressful on the voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can work for a very short amount of time and actually knock your voice out uh, because you were doing screams and barks and other things. So... It's important to understand that these are contractors. They do not work 52 weeks of the year. They can't work 52 weeks of the year. They need to rest their, their instrument. And that's important. Um, so we spoke to a number of voice actors about this story under the condition of anonymity. What I can tell you is these are people who are absolutely well-versed mm-hmm. um, that have done uh, not only acting but direction. Um, we've talked to business development folks. And here is what we have pulled together. First of all, Uh, we can confirm that Bayonetta 3 is a union production. Uh, The reason that's important is because uh, Ms. Taylor is a member of both Equity and SAG-AFTRA, SAG-AFTRA being the important one here. That's the Screen Actors Guild. Um, And whether or not that's a union production, you know, is important because if it's not a union production, then rates can come in significantly lower. Mm-hmm. But it is a union production. The SAG-AFTRA rate sheet for interactive performances is public. We were able to pull this together. And our voice actor sources did help us distill this and, and help us understand what we were looking at here. Yeah. So it is a union production. So we can we can confirm that. Um, the $4,000, and this I've heard from multiple voice actors. So every voice actor I spoke to confirmed this. Uh, is effectively around the base fee for four sessions, each of which are a max of four hours. It's a it's um, an hourly rate 
um, for four hours. Um, she would be subject to the day performer up to three voices category at a day rate of nine fifty six seventy five. I'm sorry, it's not hourly; it's a day rate. Right. So if she ends up working two hours, she still gets her day rate. Right. On top of that day rate, there's a per session fee that scales upwards. So the first session she gets seventy five dollars, the second she gets one hundred twenty five dollars, and the third and fourth sessions are one hundred seventy five dollars each. Right. So for sixteen hours of work, max four sessions. She would be entitled to under the base sag after rate of $4,177. My guess is she was rounding to that, the, sure. down to $4,000. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's probably the rate that she was offered. That's the floor, by the way. And this is the thing that people need to understand. This is, a, this is not a brand new voice actor. Nope. This is someone who is a full sag after member. Yep. This is someone coming back to an extremely popular role for the third the third full game, fourth time voicing the role, maybe more. I don't know if, if Bayonetta's shown up anywhere else, but I know definitely Bayonetta, Bayonetta 2, Smash Ultimate, and then Bayonetta 3. Right. Right. Um, what I've heard from multiple voice actors, again, is that coming back to a role like this usually commands a premium. I would imagine. So you, get a, you, you can reasonably request a bonus for coming back to the role. Um, and that that would be expected. Additionally, the voice actors we spoke to and the business development folks that we spoke to suggested that 16 hours or four sessions was likely not enough time to fully execute this role. I would imagine not. Because there's It's a fully pickups, voice acted role. Right. There's pickups, there's barks, there's a lot of other stuff that has to happen along the way. Of course. Um, now, you may be aware that Jennifer Hale, who is an extremely popular voice actor, well-liked by the voice acting community, yes. um, was instrumental in the union discussions in 2016, yep. helped bring new actors up to speed about the union so that they could become engaged in the union conversation and understand what the union was working to do for them. Jen, she's a good egg from everything that I've seen. And she put out a statement uh, as well. It is very likely, and we need to be really clear about this, that Jen had no idea what was going on with Helena Taylor. I would imagine that it's like you stay in your lane. Yeah. Well, exactly. And that's what she did in the statement that she issued because she did say that she is under NDA. And I did ask our sources and that, yes, the fee can be covered under NDA. So it is entirely possible, as Ms. Taylor said, that she broke NDA to talk about the fee. Um, and, you know, we'll see if what, if anything, comes of that from a legal perspective. Right. Um, but... Anybody who is going after Jennifer Hale over this or calling her a scab or anything like this literally has no idea what they're talking about. This is to, for someone to be a scab, by the way, um, it would require them to have full knowledge of a situation and say, I don't care. And I, because of the NDA in place, assuming that platinum and Nintendo didn't break that NDA. Um, and because they don't want her to know because it's none of her business at the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, she, there's no way she knew. She All she knew was the, the role was available. What Platinum and Nintendo said publicly was Helena Taylor was not available. Her schedule didn't allow it. Yeah. And Jennifer Hale came on. Now, it is also very likely that Jennifer Hale is being paid an appropriate wage for this. Now, for those of you who don't know Jennifer Hale, um, you've definitely heard her. She is the voice of Femshep in the Mass Effect trilogy and about 3,000 other roles. <laughs> that's um, like her iconic role. Yeah. It's not, it, I think that that's probably the role she's best known for, but she's been everywhere. Yes. In everything. Possibly yes. at all times. It's incredible how prolific Jen Hale is. Yeah. So this is an extremely messy situation, but we wanted to paint the context here 
you know, the role, our, our job here is to, is to demystify the business side of games. And this is an important conversation that we're having. It's an important labor story. Um, I think it's, you know, from our perspective, you know, you, you, you can't underpay creatives. You shouldn't be underpaying creatives and underpaying voice actors. Like there was back when the strike was happening, there were publishers who were like, well, I can just get my neighbor to like record, you know, in recording the booth. And then you get resident evil one. You were almost a Jill sandwich. Jill, the master of unlocking. I mean, do we want to go back to to that no. era? No, no, we we absolutely do not. That's no. we're in the golden age of television at this point right now. Like, no, thank you. We know what good acting is supposed to look like in episodic pieces, which gives us a good idea of what it should look like in a video game. <sighs> so yeah, that was a. All right, hang messy. on a second, because literally just as we're talking about this, there's a story on Bloomberg. Okay, so Bloomberg reporting uh, a very different side of the story. And remember, this is why we say that there's there's often more information here. And this is really well-timed, and we'll drop this link into the show notes. Uh, according to Bloomberg sources and documentation that Bloomberg was able to review, Platinum really wanted her, and they offered her three to $4,000 per session for at least five sessions. So that means, let's just say minimum, that's $15,000 right there, which is very different than $4,000. Right. According to this report from Bloomberg, Helena Taylor responded with a request for a six-figure sum and residuals. Okay. So that's a very different story. Um, and then uh, Bloomberg emailed with Ms. Taylor, who said it was a lie. Okay. So again, we now we have know. a he said, she said. For me, the most important piece of this, because I, I hate waging, waiting, waiting into this. No, no, we're, we're not waiting into it. We're presenting facts. That's yeah. all we're doing right now. Right. And we're presenting. As, we, as we've seen them. Yeah. So now we have what Ms. Taylor said. We have what Bloomberg sources said. But the most important thing and the thing that I want our listeners to take away from this is how these rates actually are calculated. So remember, we talked about that premium mm -hmm. for coming back to a role. According to the Bloomberg report, they were offering her a significant premium to come back, not $4,000 for the whole thing as a flat rate, which is what she said in her video, Right. but 4000 three to 4000 per session, which is quite the premium um, over, over the base rate. Uh, I, I don't want to weigh into whether that's enough, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm I don't want to, I definitely don't want to wade into whether six figures is know, enough or too much or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. But we, here's we the don't have the we have We have conflicting facts at this point. So I want to focus on the things that we can talk about, which is how the rates stack up for a union production. And that's it. And that's it. And that is where we will end this conversation because... Um, There's nothing else we can yeah, offer. I, I mean, I didn't want to ignore the Bloomberg report since literally as we're recording, this popped up with with some different information. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I don't think we've heard the end of this story. And I think things are, um, I think this is messy. I think messy is a very, very, very gentle way of putting it. Yeah. And I am trying to be gentle about that. Uh, but that is where we will wrap up this episode. Yep. It was a it was a bit of a longer episode, but we had we had some chunkier conversations. We did. Absolutely. 
So thank you for listening to the Virtual Economy Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Virtual Econcast. I'm Amanda Farrow. And I, wait, you're not going to spell it out? I never spell it out. I know what you should because people might not know how to spell it. Here, I'll I'll show you how it works. Uh, I am uh, Futterish, F-U-T-T-E-R-I-S-H. You like it? Just like that? (laughs) Just like he just bites it off. Yeah. Um, you can subscribe to our RSS feed at virtualeconcast.com. If you go to the homepage of virtualeconcast.com, I know it's broken. We're I know. Working. I haven't had any time to fix it, but all the podcast episodes are there. Just go click on podcasts. Yes. Um, you can listen to us on all major podcasting platforms, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, and I always forget this one. Pocket Sand! Oh, no! Right in the face. Goddamn Pocket Sand. Um, if you enjoyed, you know, what what the show was what the show is what we are what we is i don't even know um subscribe yes we we'd love to hang out with you on a semi-regular basis you know and maybe one day we will be back to being a weekly show as opposed to being a bi-weekly show yeah yeah we'll, we'll see we'll, we'll see. see we'll see what work allows uh if you have questions uh like christoph did you can go ahead and email them to us or dm them to us uh we also have a discord we'd love to have you join our community just uh hit us up at the virtual econ uh, twitter account and uh, we'll be glad to give you an invite. And uh, with that, we're done. We did it. Yeah. So remember to wash your hands, stay hydrated, and be good to one another. We'll see you soon.